You know, I've heard a lot of people say, I remember the old song, I think it was a James Brown song, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Well, I'm going to show you guys what begging will get you. You see my Atlanta Braves World Series ring? Of course, it's a replica, but I love it. And uh, I was so enamored by the ring that uh, Jordan Yoder got because he used to work for the Braves, him and Zach. Zach is getting one soon. And uh, he brought me that replica. So um, thank you for that. Uh, So begging is okay sometimes. We go to the Lord and beg for things. But uh, we stopped last Sunday watching Pontius Pilate do everything he could, he thought, to prevent Jesus from being crucified. Verse 12 of chapter 19 of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. That's where we left off, and it says this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And remember, Pilate wore the ring, and it meant a friend of Caesar. And they go on to say, whoever makes himself a king, Jesus didn't make himself a king, he is a king, speaks against Caesar. But we know that it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that that was in play here. And God touched that one thing in Pilate's life that he was not willing to give up. His power, his authority, his position in this world. And that plunged Pilate into an eternal hell. I'm very fond of that scripture that says, for what profit it is to a man if he gains the world, the whole world, and loses his own soul. And I had to remind myself over and over again of that verse when I looked at the winning numbers of Mega Millions when I didn't hit it. Now, that's a joke. I'm just letting you know. Maybe I bought a ticket. Maybe I didn't. But it doesn't matter. I didn't win. And so I had to remind myself of that scripture there. He says in verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out because he was in the inner part of the judgment hall. He brings him out there and he sat down in the judgment seat, the Bema seat. He's about to pronounce judgment here in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha, and that means ascended place. Remember, it's a mosaic area there, probably paved in marble. A bloodied and beaten and battered Jesus is standing there. And then it says in verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, around six in the morning, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king Now, there are some questions about this preparation day of the Passover because Jesus, remember, and his disciples had already had Passover prior to this. So what is this speaking about another Passover? Well, according to the Mishnah, those in Galilee that was up north kept a different calendar than those in Jerusalem did down south. Those in Galilee reckoned the day not like the typical Jewish reckoning from sunrise, from sunset to sunset. That's how God ordered it, as their brethren did in Judea 
in Jerusalem. So those in Galilee, they reckon their days from sunrise to sunrise. Uh, The Romans did that. The pagans did that kind of reckoning. Remember, the Gentiles, sometimes they were called Galilee of the Gentiles. So that rubbed out on the culture of the Jews there. So the 14th of Nisan was Thursday to them, the beginning of Passover. So it was from Thursday morning to the next morning, which is Friday morning, and then it ended. That's when Jesus and his disciples in the upper room were having their Passover. As far as we know, the only apostle that was a Judean was Judas Iscariot. The rest of these boys were country bumpkins. They were from Galilee. But the 14th of Nisan to those in Jerusalem started at sunset that Friday evening and would end at sunset the next evening, which would be Saturday. That's why verse 14 tells us now it was the preparation day of the Passover in Jerusalem. This was not only written in a different uh, Mishnah and I think also the Babylonian Targum, but a couple more books, it states this. But by this, the way they were doing this, it kind of solves a couple of problems that would have been going on in Jerusalem. You know, when you have millions of people needing to get lamb sacrificed in a short period of time, now you have two different shifts that's going on, one on Thursday and one on Friday. And that's precisely what was taking place here. So Jesus, he could eat the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday, and then he dies. The Bible tells us around three in the afternoon at the precise time They were eating their Passover meal. The providence of God is amazing. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king, Pilate did. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar blasphemous. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate was so frustrated. Uh, Matthew tells us he brings a, a basin of water out. Someone brings it to him and he washes his hand. It says this, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that atonement, a riot was rising, He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and says, his blood be on us and on our children. Verse 17 tells us, and he's Jesus Christ bearing his cross, carrying probably the cross beam, the the batellum, that long part that he was nailed to, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, because John is writing to the church. And so he's explaining all of this to them, where they crucified him. You know, in all four gospels, it says, 
and they crucified him. All four Gospels, when they come to the crucifixion, it happens very quickly. They don't elaborate on it. It's like the Father is saying, we're going to get to this peak, we're going to rush through it, and then we'll speak about his victory here. But it also says, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Once again, we know this is by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. By his counsel, it would happen this way. Here he puts his son on the cross between two thieves, and he holds them up, all three of them, before the world. Because there's only two choices that every one of us must choose from. The kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. His will or your will. That's what this means. We are so familiar with these three crosses. I was, as I was driving yesterday, I saw on the back window of a vehicle, and there stood those three crosses there. And we see these three crosses as a witness to us or a witness against us, because that's the way it will fall out. On that Passover night, the lamb was taken to the threshold of the door. In the Hebrew, which is actually in the Hebrew terms, it's not called a threshold. It's an Egyptian word. It's called the sop. And they would take that lamb and they would go to the door because the the threshold or the sop would keep the rain from coming in, water from coming in, mud from coming in. And they would crucify, they would slaughter that lamb there and the blood would go into the sop. And then the head of that household, that man would go and he would take that hyssop and put it over the top of the lentil and on the two sides of the lentil. And there would be a depiction of the prophecy of Jesus Christ being in the center of two thieves there, all the providence of God. We know the dynamics of this. John doesn't give us any details about this in the fourth gospel, about these two thieves. But we find it in the synoptics gospel These two thieves that were crucified on either side of Christ, their hands and feet nailed down, unable to move, neither one of them able to be baptized or take their first holy communion, nailed there before the world. Both of them, at the beginning, they both mock and they jeer Christ like all of us did at one time. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 tells us, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature. That's why they're hanging on each side, 
children of wrath, just as the others. But as all of this was going on, somehow, one of them watching, probably hearing Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of these thieves looking at Christ finally saying, it finally registers, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus then, he lets them know, today you will be with me in paradise. And we see these two individuals here, both sinners, both thieves, both no moral character to brag about. The same distance, I want us to see this, from Christ. Neither can do any religious act. All they can do is relative to the heart. Romans 10.10 tells us, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But all of a sudden, one heart begins to soften, and the other stays hardened. Maybe the heart that was softened, parents had raised this child into a man now, and he used, they used to take him to the synagogue and read the Torah to him and all of these things, and he walked away from the Lord, and they had been following Jehovah's statues all of this time. But the son didn't want anything to do with the God of Israel, and he didn't care about the God of Israel. But maybe as he's hanging, he started to think about all of those times his parents brought him to the synagogue, and he would ask questions, and, and his parents would begin to tell him, yeah, there's a Messiah, and, it's, and he's coming, and his name is Jesus, and he's going to set us free from the tyranny. Oh, not from the tyranny of Roman oppression. That's good and well. That would be nice, but there's a greater danger. There's a greater tyranny, and that tyranny is the tyranny of sin. And this Messiah is coming, and he will set us free because we are all born with a sinful nature, turned backwards against the grace of God. But there's going to come a Messiah who's going to set us free from all of this. And while he's listening to Jesus on that cross, not murmuring, not complaining, but saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All of a sudden, it registers, and he gives his life to the Lord. And now he's beholding the Lamb of God, and it comes together for this man. And he asks Christ, and he comes to Christ there. Verse 19 tells us, now, Pilate, wrote a title, and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, the language of religion, in Greek, the language of philosophy and commerce, and in Latin, the language of government and power. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, 
do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. It wasn't enough to crucify him. They were still after him. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, once again, the synoptic gospel tell us the writing was over his head. And that should tell us something because there's always uh, debates of what kind of cross Jesus was crucified on. The T, uh, the, the, the other a three-sided cross, but it had to be a cross, the traditional cross, in order for them to put that placard over his head stating that he is the king of the Jews here. And one thing about this cross, it didn't have to be raised too high off of the ground. Probably the average was two to three feet off the ground because there's stories, there's accounts that says that the people who were being crucified would be hung on the cross so long that jackals and wild dogs would begin to eat their feet and eat them up until their knees. All of this was going on. Matter of fact, the shortest crucifixion on record was 32 hours. Imagine that, the shortest. That's a long time. The longest, 13 days. So normally, it was a long and terrible process, this crucifixion. Once again, the Persians, they were the first who started crucifixion, but the Romans, they perfected it, perfected it to torture you, to, to make sure to let everyone know you didn't want to do a capital crime here. They took it and they made it something unthinkable, crucifixion. Matter of fact, one of their philosophers, Cicero, described crucifixion as the worst extreme of tortures inflicted upon slaves because Roman citizens, they couldn't be crucified. Tacitus called it a despicable death. And as I was reading this, I hearkened back to Romans when we went through the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the beginning of it, it says this, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, whom God set forth, as a propitiation. That word set forth, those two words set forth means a public display. The father makes a public display of his son. Jesus is the mercy seat. Propitiation is also the word called hilasterion. And that's once again, that's where all of the wrath of God falls at the mercy seat on Jesus Christ. That is what's happening. That's what happened to the son. Romans goes on to say, by his blood through faith to demonstrate Jesus, his righteousness. Remember, it was the place where the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on that one day, Yom Kippur, the day of the atonement. He would go into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to satisfy the wrath of God for that season. And by referring Christ to the mercy seat, what Paul is saying is in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the mercy seat to what the mercy seat in the holies of holies was. Now you can have peace with God through the person 
of Jesus Christ. That's the only way any human being will ever have peace with the holy God. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. And the Father is showing this in a public display. That's what he's doing, being victorious. He will be victorious here. Verse 23 tells us, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, this was already prophesied in Psalms 22, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them. Aren't you glad we have a God who is circumspect over every area of our lives? Good or bad, those things are going to happen because we live in a fallen world. But God is hovering over his children. When we think he dropped the ball or he missed something, he's saying, no, I'm right here. I allowed it. But I'm right here with you to bear, bear this load and to carry this load. And you're going to come out for the better while you're going through these things. God, nothing takes him by surprise. And he says, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Once again, Psalms 22:18. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. I wonder If Mary is thinking about when Joseph and her brought Jesus to the temple as a baby. Remember to that prophet Simeon and Annas was there also. A godly and just man, the scriptures tell us. The Holy Spirit has spoken to Simeon and and the Holy Spirit had told him, you will not see death until the Son of God is revealed to you. I bet Simeon looked every day for this encounter. Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 29 and 30, Lord, when he picks him up, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I wasn't there when Simeon said this, but I, I saw something pretty close when I went to that Chris Tomlin and a Hillsong concert because I forget the ministry they were, they were speaking of, but what they were doing, they were taking to the gospel, the scriptures, to parts of, of, of places that's never had the scriptures. And they videoed the plane was landing and they had the Bible translated in, in their language there. And the guy, a couple of guys gets off and they take the Bible and it's in a box and he opens it up and he gives the chief of that tribe the Bible and he opens it up and he starts crying and he didn't have the scriptures in front of him. And he quoted exactly what Simeon said when he was holding Jesus. This thing right here is important. This thing right here is precious. It's the living word of God. And Simeon is holding Jesus. 
And he says in verse 34 and 35 of that same chapter, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. While she's at the foot of the cross, I'm sure she's remembering what Simeon has said to her, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Verse 25 of chapter 19, he says, And his mother's sister, maybe Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Therefore the soldiers did these things. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son hanging on a cross, suffering and in, in pain and in shame. Let's not forget about that. That was more than the pain, was the shame naked. The Bible says he endured, not the pain, not the suffering. I want you to understand. It says he endured the shame because it was shameful. And Jesus being the eldest son says, hey, that's my responsibility to take care of my mom, to make sure her house is in order. I believe he talked to John many times about this. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. I find that interesting. We know Jesus had about four brothers and then plural sisters. We're not told how many sisters he had, but he didn't turn his mom over to James or Simon of Joses or Jude. None of those guys were believers at this time. So that speaks volumes about being a believer in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I, I, I'd rather for my brother or sister in Christ, I trust them more than any of my kin That's my flesh and blood. And Jesus says, hey, John, take care of her. And I'm sure when James and Jude become believers, they also help at this. But right now he turns her over to John. And then verse 28 tells us after this, after what? After these three hours of darkness, It says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, like the song said, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, to me, in that place, in that darkness, he suffered unimaginably because he will come out of that darkness and then he will say, it is finished. He hasn't died physically yet. Matter of fact, in all four gospel, it says he gave up his spirit. He died eternally in that darkness somehow in a way that we will never understand. That's where he drank the cup of God's wrath that is poured out without mixture 
all of the sin of everyone who's ever been born into this world, he had to pay for it. First Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's hard for us to imagine, to imagine. What must have taken place in those three hours of darkness, now coming out of that darkness? We find him victorious, not a victim. It says in verse 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on, on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And they didn't do this as a cruel joke because the soldiers would drink this. It would quench your thirst. So when Jesus, notice he received this. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Psalms 22 telling us that his tongue was claved to his mouth, exhausted. That's why when he says, Eloi, Eloi, Sabathani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They couldn't understand what he was saying, so they ran and gave him vinegar to drink. And then he clears his throat and he gives his victory shout. Tetelestai. He said it clearly. It is finished. Present tense. It has been finished, it stands finished, and it will always remain finished. The work that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf, that's what he's saying, is finished. Redemption is finished. And then it says, and bowing his head. Rabbi. The young, rich ruler ran to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus cuts to the the chase and he says, let me tell you one thing, since you want to know. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air has their nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That word lay is bow. This is not his environment. The birds have their environments. We have our environment. Jesus says, this is not my environment here. I have nowhere to get comfortable to be at home here. But it says here, in bowing his head, he finally had a place to rest. It's over with. He gave up his spirit. All four Gospels tell us this. In Luke, there's one last saying of those seven sayings of Christ. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the darkness, remember, he was crying, my God, my God, not Father. And again, crying that out for you and me. There are huge questions in this life. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, tragedy in a marriage, loss of income. There are things that leave us sitting around saying, why? 
God, if you love me, usually that's the big question. If you're on the throne, and I I, I believe you are, and you're all powerful, and I, I believe you are, why cancer? You could snap your finger. You could think the word, and it would be gone. Why this difficulty if you're on the throne? See, those things aren't answered by some cavalier quotation, all things work together for the good. And I believe that. But sometimes when you're going through so much that's heartbreaking, we have to chalk it up to the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And to remember whatever sense of abandonment we might feel, Whatever sense of betrayal we could possibly feel, whatever sense of loss we could ever possibly feel, whatever sense of pain we could imagine, what Jesus is going through at this point exceeds anything that we might ever go through to a degree that We could never imagine. Jesus, I'm saying, he says, when we're going through those things, when we're rock bottom and the world is flipped upside down and we can't understand it, Jesus understands. Jesus is there. He has not forgotten you. He will never forget his child. And he's right there holding you up when you think you're doing it and you can shed tears with him, when no one else understands, he understands. Because what he goes through on these three, with these three hours of darkness will be forever in heaven learning of his grace and of his mercy. And we can go to him and we can pour our heart out to him because he knows and he cares. Because once again, this level of the question why is something you and I will never have to experience. You and I will never have to experience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, you might feel like it. We might feel like it at times when we don't understand. But we will never experience that. And then all of a sudden, he emerges from that time victoriously. It's behind him. And he cries with a loud voice, it is finished. I'm a moviegoer and watcher, almost too expensive now. But I'm reminded of that movie, Braveheart. And Sir William Wallace, when he's on that rack, and the first time I saw it, I was blown away, and they're stretching him, and he cries out, freedom. Imagine Jesus. It is finished. He had drank the water. He had drank the the, the vinegar to clear his throat, and he cries out, it is finished, all debts 
are canceled. The Jubilee trumpet has been blown. Redemption has been paid for. Whosoever will, let him come. That's what he says here. That's why we are so happy. And he commits his spirit into the hands of his father willingly. It tells us in verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. No doubt Sabbath is coming, but also the first day of unleavened bread. That's what he speaks of here. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The world sometimes is very hard on us. And while those other two thieves are still alive and hanging, they go with the club. Sometimes they would use the the butt end of the sword and break the femur so they couldn't push up and catch air, and they would suffocate on that cross and die. But once again, when they get to Jesus, he's already given up the ghost. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. I'm not sure of the motive, but I know the Jews would get in an uproar if their bodies are not taken down off the cross. So he had to make sure this Roman centurion that everyone on that cross would be dead or dying soon. And so when he gets to Jesus, he takes that spear and he, don't, he does not jab it into him. The, the, the butt end, the sharp end of that spear was so sharp, he laid it and he opened him up. The reason I know he opened him up is because when Jesus in his glorified body, he goes into the room and the disciples are there except for Thomas. When Thomas is there, he appears again and he tells Thomas, reach your finger and look at my hands, his wrist, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Put your hand in my side. So he opened him up pretty good there. And it says, and immediately blood and water came out. That tells us the pericardium sac was full of water around his heart. Some say, and I believe it, Jesus died of a broken heart. Looking at all of those, he came to his own and his own received him not. Have you ever been just down and out and nothing is going right and you call a friend or something And they just don't give you that love and sympathy that you thought, hey, I just need someone to cheer me up, to be in my corner. That's what Jesus is facing. It tells us in Psalm 69, 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I'm sure he is. I look for someone to take pity. There it is. But there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And he who has seen, John says, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John says, I was there, 
I've seen it unfold. Out of the rest of the Gospels, we don't know, but I'm pretty sure uh, Matthew wasn't there. We know Luke wasn't there because he gathered records. But we know John was there. Verse 36, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Now he tells us, not one of his bones shall be broken. Exodus 34 speaks of that. Uh, Psalms 34 speaks of that. Exodus 12, I think, speaks of that. And Numbers speaks of not, uh, not any of the bones of his bones would be broken. And John is letting us know that they didn't do that. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. That's a very interesting scripture right there. Zechariah 12, 10. If you have any Jewish friends and they're questioning if Jesus is the Messiah or not, this is a great text that you should take them to because this text right here is a near and far prophecy. It prophesies when it does go down about the piercing of the body of Jesus Christ and then the far side Zechariah speaks about. It says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. The text is speaking of Jehovah God. This is how Zechariah puts it. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is taking us to the last days, the end of days. And then he says in verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me. Jehovah is speaking. This is the first person here. Then they will look on me, whom they pierce. They will look on me, whom they pierce. When John is writing, of course, he uses him. They shall look on him, whom they pierce. The question is that the Jews are searching for their Messiah who is the him when Jehovah says this? Because Jesus Christ, it lets us know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's a great scripture here. And everything is rolling out exactly the way the Godhead wanted it to. Now, we come to these two very interesting men here. Joseph of Arimathea. He's mentioned in all four Gospels. Matthew says he's a rich man. Luke tells us he's good and just. That usually doesn't go together. Rich, good, and just. But it comes together here with Joseph of Arimathea. Luke tells us, remember, he didn't consent of those who decided to crucify Christ. He also has a tomb Joseph does in Jerusalem and is carved out of solid rock. There were no pneumatic tools at that time. So for Joseph of Arimathea to get this tomb carved out, at that time, he was a wealthy man. He was Jeff Bezos rich if he was paying a, a denarii a day. So he's a very rich man. It also speaks of Joseph of Arimathea because his tomb should be, and it is, in Arimathea. Because when you would have a tomb, 
your entire family would be buried in that tomb. So his grandparents is in Arimathea. His mom and dad is in Arimathea. But he says, no, I'm going to carve me out a tomb in Jerusalem. So when the Messiah comes, because they all want to be buried in the east, they will see him face to face. That's why he has a tomb there. But he's a disciple. He's an honorable man. He's one of 14 honorable men that's ever mentioned in the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. And here comes Nicodemus, that disciple by night. Remember, he also complained about these sham trials that they were putting Jesus through. And they asked Nicodemus, hey, do you want to be one of his disciples? And so Nicodemus, he backs off at this time. These two must have come together and shared their hearts about this prophet of Nazareth, and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And here they come, Nicodemus dragging this 75-pound, 100-pound bag of myrrh and alloys. And Joseph of Arimathea, he has to have the the pry bar here. It says in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate. That word ask, one, one uh, I think Luke says beg, but, but he implores Pilate. He begs Pilate, please let me have the body because they would bury all prisoners in unknown tombs. They would just throw them away. That's what's happening. They thought would happen to Jesus, but the providence of God that he might take away the body of Jesus. Mark tells us Pilate first inquires, is he dead already? He was surprised of that. And then when it says he gave him permission, that means he gifted Joseph. I'm going to give you this body as a gift, Joseph. And he takes it. So he came, and the Bible says, and he took the body of Jesus. This is sometime around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They want to take care of this body, clean this body up, put, put him in the tomb by sunset. And they can forget about the Passover because they are defiled now. The Romans don't take this body down. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, rich men. I don't know how they reached the body. Say it, he he was two feet off the ground. I don't know how they got to him, but they had to pry nails, six-inch, seven-inch nails, pull one off. By this time, the body, rick mortis has set in, stiff as a board. And they had to massage him, one. I don't know if they took the nails from his feet next or the the other nail from his wrist. But they're both holding the body. Finally, God has his body, his son's body, in someone's hands who loves him. And they take him in this garden tomb after they've massaged him well. And he's finally loose. And they begin to wash the blood 
from his body and take that crown of thorns off his head. And they're pouring water on him. And he begins to clear up. The Jews had a tradition. Before Gamaliel made the rule, when you were buried, whatever jewels, whatever expensive things you had, you would, they would be placed in a tomb. So the rich people, if you had much, they would put it in the tomb. If you were poor, of course, you had nothing. And Gamaliel said, this is not right. We shouldn't do this. And so they came up with the rule. That's how you get the shroud of Terran. It's called a takrahim. And they would lay the body down and put that linen cloth down. And then you would lay the body and you would wrap him three times in that shroud. Before you would do that, you would tie his hands, his arms by his side, his chin so his mouth wouldn't open up, his feet, and then you would begin to place the aloes and the mirror on him. That's what's happening. And you know while all of this is going on, this is what amazes me. They don't know chapter 20. They don't know chapter 20. They are in a relationship with the dead Jesus. They have pushed all of their chips on the table and said, I'm all in. I believe in this dead Jesus. They don't know chapter 20. And we, I'm not going to put you in it. And Victor struggles with the risen Lord when my world shakes a little bit. And they're doing this over a dead Jesus, and they don't know what's going to happen the next day. It says in verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds. They take this body down. They will be excommunicated from the temple. As Pastor Pastor Jonathan said, we've learned that was their life. If you couldn't go to the temple, you were excommunicated from everything. Joseph of Arimathea loses all of his wealth. He has to move into the house with Gamaliel. Nicodemus, his full name is Nicodemus Ben-Gorion the brother of Josephus, the third richest man in Israel, Nicodemus. After he becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, they said Josephus, not Josephus, they said that Nicodemus, when he gave a wedding for his only daughter, it was the most opulent wedding ever in Israel. Tradition says 30 years later, After he gave his life to the Lord, they found his daughter in a barn scraping up barley. They were dirt poor. Why? Because they believed in Jesus Christ. That's faith. That's putting your hand to the plow and never looking back. That's come hell or high water, no matter what happens, 
I know this world is not my home, and I have a home somewhere in his kingdom. This is nothing. That's what they said. Whether I have to live in a cardboard box under a bridge, whether my parents don't speak to me, whether they're upset with me, no matter what, I'm on the winning team. That's what we need to understand. And when trials come and when hard times come and the worship team can come up, remember those three hours of darkness that Jesus suffered through to give you eternal life. And we fall apart over things. And I don't say that tritely, but we have to look at the big picture, you guys. These guys are all in for a dead Messiah. They don't know in three days he's going to resurrect. All they know, I'm all in no matter what. That's what Jesus is wanting us to know this morning. Are we following him with a whole heart? Are we following him with joy? Or are we eat or woe is me? Oh, this is me. Oh, this is all that. I found out. Corson taught me this a long time ago when I used to listen to his tapes Sunday in, day in, day out. If I ever start saying, oh, my world is just upside down. Woe is me. I'm just saying it's just terrible. Go serve. It's plenty of people out there that has it worse than PV. That's all of us. All eyes off self and on Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That's how we shine like stars in the universe. Let me finish with these verses. Verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. It says the custom that was made. And I thought about and I looked. And I said, what, what, what are they talking about this custom? And I go back to the book of Acts where Tabitha had died. Peter was trying to get there. He couldn't get there. She passed away. Her name was also Dorcas. And they had all of the, and it says they washed her body. And later in the upper room, that's what they did for Jesus. You guys, God loves us. He hasn't promised us a rose garden down here. He's promised all of that in the kingdom of God. And I implore you to get your eyes off yourself and serve others. There's plenty of people that lives are turned upside down. They don't know which way is up. And they live day to day. And we need to pour out our hearts and love on those people. Let's pray. Father, 
I don't understand. I'm not equipped. I don't have the capacity to understand what your son and my Savior went through in those three hours of darkness. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he did that because he loves humanity. He loves his children. And Jesus, you didn't stop there. Now you're sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all of your children. You sympathize with us because you are a man like us. So everything that we go through that we think we're, on, we're the only one that's ever been through anything, all we have to do is look to you and allow you to come and love on us and speak to us and pour your grace upon us to get our eyes off of ourselves and on others. And we'll see days lighten up and the burden being lifted up. Lord, I'm not trivial and I'm not trite about trials and tribulations on this earth. They are here. But they are also doing a work in all of us to make us into the image of our dear Savior. And Jesus, you are right there with us to get us through, to take us home. So may we walk this Christian walk with joy, with love and with grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we should. Father, I pray for all those that are hurting, that are sick, loss, loss of jobs, whatever it might be, Lord, that has people anxious and not giving them peace. I pray that you would come in and move on their hearts to give them that peace that surpasses all understanding, letting them know, reminding them that you are on the throne and that you are a good God and that everything is going to be all right. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close.